0: Imagine that every day you feel like you don't belong.
1: Being neurodivergent in a mainstream schooling system is like being a fish trying to walk. It's not, it's a system that was never designed for me. It's a system that was never supposed to be designed for me. School was terrifying, and every single day I made myself sick with fear and with worry. Yeah, school was probably the
0: worst time of my life. Today on Feed, Play, Love, we're going to get some insight on what it's like to be a neurodivergent child. Feed, Play, Love with Siobhan Hunt. I know a 10-year-old girl on the autism spectrum who's been diagnosed with clinical depression. This little girl is smart, funny and very loved. But she's struggling, as are those who love her. If you have a child on the spectrum, chances are you understand what I'm talking about. Your child doesn't fit into how the world seems to be made. Chloe Hayden understands, she's been there. But she's also here to tell us that things can get better. Her book is called Different, Not Less. A Neurodivergence Guide to Embracing Your True Self and Finding Your Happily Ever After. Hi, Chloe. Hi, thanks for having me. It is an absolute pleasure and I love, I love your book and I love the way you've written it. It seems so honest and straightforward and a real insight to those of us who are neurotypical. Mm-hmm. You say you knew from a very early age that you were different, like as young as five.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: How is that possible? <laughs>
1: I guess when you're growing up different, um, specifically, you know, undiagnosed neurodivergent, kids aren't stupid. Kids look around and they see other kids that are playing together and interacting with each other and interacting with the world and understand how to interact with the world. And I knew from like pretty much the second I gained, you know, consciousness that the way that I interacted with the world wasn't the way that I was supposed to and wasn't the way that everyone else was. Um, Like I remember being in kindergarten and all the other kids were playing games together and I was lining up Legos in color order and all the other kids were having conversations and I remember just like sitting on the sideline watching them and wishing so desperately that I could do the same thing and other kids were making friends with other kids and I was making friends with birds and snails that I found. You don't have to be an adult to know that you don't belong somewhere Everyone at any age can have that feeling of, why am I here? And I had that so, so early on.
0: Your parents at the time, though, they thought you were just quirky. I imagine they loved you from the get-go and how you are and how you're different. I imagine for them, that's like, that's just my kid. That's Mm -hmm. just how she is. How long did it take for you to get a diagnosis?
1: So I was 13 when I got diagnosed and it was actually my English and homeroom teacher in year eight that called my parents in for an emergency meeting and she was basically like, hey, there's something wrong with your kid and we need to talk about it. And I wasn't allowed to be part of this meeting, but my parents told me later on that it was showcasing my work to them and that it wasn't up to the same standard or that I was daydreaming in class. Um, She would show them my locker and the lost property box and would show them how messy my locker was and how pretty much all of the lost property in the school belonged to me. They were like, she cries most times in class and we never see her playing at recess. She's always locked in the back of the library. And she was like, I think you need to go and get her tested for something. And at the time, getting tested wasn't going to a psychologist and getting an autism assessment you know, because I was a 13-year-old girl. 13-year-old girls can't be autistic. So the idea of getting tested was I went and got MRI scans done and CAT scans done because they thought that I had fallen off my horse too many times and <laughs> had some brain damage. Oh God, um, Chloe. And I was terrified because, you know, my mum was like, Hey, like they think you fell off Marley too many times. And Marley is my absolute demon pony sent from hell. (laughs) Like she is the worst horse. I love her to death, but she is the worst horse. She gave me like six six concussions in like my first like two months of owning her. My friends that were very, very experienced horse riders at a professional level were like, we are not getting on your horse. Like she was banned from Pony Club. Like she is literally the devil in horse form. But I was terrified because, like, my dad had threatened to send her to the sale yard so many times. And I was like, if I am actually brain damaged because of Marley, they're going to send her away. And I was terrified about it. I'm like, I don't care about what happens to me. I just don't want my horse to get away. And obviously, you know, the scans came back and my brain was normal and they
0: were like, hmm, interesting um, And M- MRIs are a big deal. Though, they're like, a big
1: deal. And frightening like, It's in an intense
0: thing. And like I was just like sitting in this
1: like, oh, like lying down in this little like box thing. And my first thought was like I was praying. I was like, please let there be nothing wrong with me so I can keep my pony. And my second thought is if they think that there's something wrong with me, why don't they just ask me? You know, like the fact that their first thought was like, let's get an MRI scan done rather than like let's talk to her and obviously nothing showed up and then I went to a psychologist and for six weeks I did tests and questions and role plays and they asked my mum questions and got like all my school reports and stuff and I was very confused I had no idea what was going on um, but I've come to learn that from neurotypicals and then after six weeks they handed my mum a book and was like it's an
0: autistic person there you go and that's how that diagnosis happened. How did you feel about the diagnosis?
1: Well my mum cried And, you know, when you're 13 years old and your mum cries, you think the world is ending. And when you're 13 years old and your mum is crying and you know that you're the reason she's crying, you think that you're the one that's making the world end. And, you know, I'd been in a doctor's for six weeks. So my first thought when I saw my mum crying is the first thing I said to her is, am I dying? Oh, God. Because that's what I thought was happening. I'm like, I've been in a doctor for six weeks. You guys just had a very intense discussion and now you're crying. Like, I've seen the movies. This means I'm going to die next week, you know. And then I got home and I Googled it which was the worst thing I could have done because the only things I found was just more articles to prove that it was honestly a worse fate because the only articles I found were parents saying, how do I make my kid not autistic? And my life is ruined because my kid's autistic. And doctors saying like, here's how to cure autism and here's what autism is. And basically it sucks and your whole life is over. And like autism support groups saying, there's like, there's an ad out by Autism Speaks in America. Um, and it's, made out as a horror movie and the script is like I am autism I will ruin your marriage and it shows a mum trying to jump off a bridge because she found out her kid's autistic
0: and I was 13 yeah (laughs)
1: it's nuts and I was like 13 years old and watching this and I was like whoa shit man like okay like that this is even worse like so at the start it definitely wasn't a relief because I was told from the get-go that autism is an awful scary thing and, like, you're better off dead, you know?
0: Yeah. Oh, my God. My heart hurts for that little girl. I mean, thankfully, I have the book and I have seen and we will talk about all the amazing things that come after this. It sounds like such an incredible lonely time because not only did your family who probably, well, who would have wanted to help you and make the world better for you, They didn't actually understand what it was if they were being told all of these awful doom and gloom Mm -hmm. things. And at the same time, uh, school's hard. Like, how did you get through that period?
1: Well, I kind of didn't. I started getting homeschooled halfway through year eight. The same day I got my diagnosis, my psychologist brought my parents in um, and they were like, you need to start homeschooling your daughter today, otherwise you won't have a daughter anymore. So school was the worst time of my life. It was... Awful, and it sucked. Um, and I would force myself to be sick. I I would get myself so worked up that I would become physically ill most days. And for a while, you know, my mum was like, "Oh, there's actually, you know, something physically wrong with her, so I'll keep her home, you know, because she's ill." And then eventually, my mum realised that it was affecting my mental health so deeply and so badly that she just let me stay home from school a lot. When I was in grade four, I think it was. I had the principal and like a someone from the education system come to my door because they were like, you've missed too much school. We need to take you, which was terrifying. And I was crying and my mom was crying. Basically school sucks. And it sucks for a lot of neurodivergent people because it's a system completely built away
0: from us. So for parents who are listening now, I'm aware that if they have a neurodivergent child and they're listening and they're of primary school age or even at daycare, they're probably uh, feeling quite sick at the moment because they're like, well, what do I do if this school system, which is everywhere, you know we don't we, mm-hmm. we don't have the power to change the school system on our own. What would you say to parents whose children are struggling with school?
1: Speak to the teachers. When I was in school, autism was something that was so misunderstood and so just simply not known. like no one knew about autism when I was in school. It wasn't a thing. and one of the reasons my mum freaked out is because her own views of autism was little boys sitting in the corner of a room screaming and they were like well is that what my daughter's going to become you know like autism is so misconceived so talk to the teachers and now like autism is starting to become more known and disabilities and just different brains and different wirings are starting to become more known and more understood and more accepted within the schooling system um and it's not an overnight thing but the more that parents and students and people can talk to the education system the more we can make that change And also understand education isn't everything. Like if your kid is like having suicidal ideation and making themselves physically sick every day because of a schooling system, maybe it's not built for them. Maybe they shouldn't be there. People that pride education over a a child's mental health, like really, really need to to rethink their mindset. The day that I started getting homeschooled, my whole life changed. Both of my parents said the second I got homeschooled, they saw a spark in my eyes that they had never seen before.
0: Which is hard to imagine looking at you now.
1: Well, <laughs> exactly. Well, I was partially mute until I was 16. And a big reason that is because of how much the education system just ruins me. So, yeah, like I know that homeschooling isn't an option for everyone, but like stand up for your kid, man. And if you're prioritising education and going to school and school attendance over your child's mental health, you really need to rethink your priorities.
0: One teacher, though, that you mention in the book that did make a difference was a teacher named Wendy. Let's talk about when teachers get it right. Why was Wendy so special for you?
1: Wendy was the only teacher in my entire school life that understood and loved and cherished me for me. Every other teacher I ever had was trying to force me into something I could never be. And Wendy saw me for who I was and was like, great, let's keep that. She never tried to fit me into a box that I couldn't fit into. She never tried to change me into something that I wasn't on the days that were too hard for me she understood and when i you know had to come back to school she would greet me with open arms and would say how are you feeling and how are you really feeling on the days at school that were too hard she wouldn't make me do the work she would sit down with me and she would let me ramble to her about the titanic and my favorite book and you know she was a bookworm as well so we would sit down during lunchtime she would give up her recess hours just so i could sit down because i was so scared of all the other students and we would sit down together and I would spill facts to her and she would ask questions about it. And we'd talk to each other about our favorite books. And sometimes she'd bring her dog in and I would just sit with the dog for the entire day. Wendy saw me for who I actually was and would all the time tell me, This is one time in your life and you're going to thrive when you find your people. You just have to get through this period. And I genuinely think that Wendy saved my life at that time. Like everything else was really, really hard. And the entire schooling system was really hard. Wendy was like the only shining light that I had at that time.
0: In the book, you use a metaphor throughout of Disney movies. Yes. Yes, which at the beginning I did see The Happily Ever After and I'm a huge cynic, so I was like, oh, no, what is this? <laughs> but I love the way you describe that um, A Happily Ever After is a whole story. So you've got your beginning, which often starts with a challenge, mm-hmm. and then you have the adventure where you find your sidekicks, yes. which I love that, and then you f- come to the end where you find that happily ever after and and you also mentioned that happily ever after isn't the full stop like yeah. the cycle can continue which is what I love about that and I want to talk about that adventure phase mm-hmm. and finding your sidekick so Wendy was one of your sidekicks yes. and for this little girl that I mentioned in the introduction I want to be her sidekick mm-hmm. so how can we be that when we're neurotypical when we may not be a child it might be a niece, it might be a daughter or a son or a friend's child. And Mm -hmm. you just want that child to know that there are better times ahead, but they're facing the ongoing battle Mm -hmm. of being in this world that doesn't suit them. How can we be a good sidekick?
1: Just by being there for them. Like being a sidekick isn't hard. You don't have to be or do anything extravagant. If I had one other kid in my life who was like, hey, do you want to come and sit with us at lunch? If I had one person who came up to me in the playground, that's a sidekick. That's all I needed. Being a sidekick isn't being a hero. It's literally just being a part of that person's story in any form of positive way. And I truly believe that every single person has the opportunity to be a sidekick. And you know, my idea is that every single person is playing a part in this fairy tale. And you need to actively choose your part. You need to actively choose to be that sidekick. And it's not hard. It's just asking the question. It's just supporting that person. It's just understanding this person might be going through something. And I don't have to do anything extravagant. I just have to be there and understand and do what I can to help them find their place in the world. And that's as simple as understanding what different needs are. It's as simple as understanding um, and promoting accessibility Everyone can be a sidekick. And if you don't actively choose to be the sidekick, you could end up being the villain of that person's story. You know, you're not actively choosing to be the villain, but it's choosing to actively partake in this fairy tale.
0: So let's get to the fairy tale part that we all like, which is the happily ever after. So I see before me now a gorgeous, stunning woman who is making a real difference in people's lives you're not only advocating for others you're also forging ahead your own path so let's talk about what happens when you stop trying to fit into the world as everyone expects you to and you find comfort in dancing to the beat of your own drum Mm -hmm. is that too many metaphors no I love I love (laughs) as someone that's autistic I love a good metaphor (laughs) So let's talk about, oh gosh, where do we start? Let's talk about your Instagram following. So you have (laughs) a huge following on Instagram. Where did that all start and how did it evolve? So when I only
1: found these terrible medical deficit articles on autism, I started a blog and it was literally just me screaming out to the universe, begging to find more people like me. I wasn't doing it to be anyone or do anything. I just wanted to find other people And I found them and I realized that all of them, you know, they were responding back to me going, I didn't realize there were other people like me either. And, you know, they'd all read the same articles I had. And I kind of was like, oh, okay, well, no one else is doing anything about this. So maybe it's my job. You know, I've never been the sort of person to like just sit back and go, oh, okay. Like, I'm like, I have to be doing something. So I was like, well, I guess it's my job. So I started talking about my life and sharing my experience as an autistic woman in a very, very neurotypical pleasing society. And people caught onto it and people felt themselves in it and people saw themselves in my stories because at the time I was the only person doing it. And I just started sharing my story and educating people about autism and my life and, you know, my journey as an autistic person and people started following it. I didn't expect anything to come of this. I just wanted to share my story and hope that maybe one person could go, okay, well, maybe i'm okay too and now i've got like 80,000 followers on instagram and like half a million on tiktok and i'm like whoa okay and <laughs> and i'm just kind of going with it like i didn't plan any of this but yeah it's it's so exciting and it's awesome cuz i wish i had someone like that when i was growing up i wish i didn't have to read all of these awful medical articles about autism i wish i had an autistic person that was older than me that you know was doing okay for themselves and feeling okay for themselves That I could go, okay, I'm going to be okay. And I didn't. And I'm really, really happy that, you know, other, not even just autistic people, just people that feel like they don't belong, because that's a lot of people can, you know, hopefully look at my posts and go, oh, okay, I'm fine.
0: Yeah. And you're better than fine. (laughs) Um, Before we go on to other things, there was one thing I wanted to talk about that you have posted about quite regularly on your Instagram, and that is stimming. Yes, I love how you talk about stimming. I hadn't heard it expressed the way you talk about it. I haven't seen anyone post about it or show it in a a way that other people can see. So can you tell us why we should embrace this and how we should understand it?
1: So basically, stimming literally is just moving your body in a way that is self-regulatory. And a lot of people, stimming is very, very negatively spoken about. But at the end of the day, literally every single person in the entire history of the universe stims, probably multiple times a day. In fact, probably most of the time you're stimming. Um, Neurotypical people tend to stim in ways like tapping your foot or like picking at your fingers or like playing with your hair or even humming. Like it's all stimming. And a lot of neurotypicals get really freaked out when I say that because they're like, oh, I don't want to stim. And it's like, but you do it all the time. And for some reason, my version of stimming, which is flapping my hands when I'm excited um, or rocking when I'm upset or walking on my toes when I'm overstimulated or echolalia, which is basically just repeating um, noises and words, for some reason that's bizarre and people can't deal with that. But at the end of the day, like if you you try to get rid of stimming, it's only going to cause more negative effects. Like I have so many – therapists and doctors and psychologists that are like stimming is bad and you need to get rid of it. But if you try to get rid of stimming, you're only going to force negative behaviors on them. There is nothing wrong with flapping your hands. And if you're offended by me flapping your hands, like, oh, you need to see a
0: therapist. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've seen your videos of you stimming and I think it's just full of joy. So <laughs> Thank you. Um, that is really refreshing. Okay. So um, you have a massive following on social media. <laughs> You are also in Heartbreak High, so now you're an actor. When is that being released? Uh, September 14th. Okay, so everyone is super excited. I have to ask you questions off there about Heartbreak High (laughs) because the Heartbreak High of my era is completely inappropriate, but I'm assuming yours is much more... Appropriate?
1: Well, I guess it depends on what you mean by appropriate. I mean the original Heartbreak
0: teacher student relations liaisons. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Damn Um, it. I thought we'd get an exclusive. No man, I've been media trained. Um, (laughs) I mean, the original Heartbreak High was very progressive for its time, you know. It was it was showing things that were raw and real um and that teenagers had never seen themselves being represented before. And our show is a different show. It's a reimagining of the original, but it's very true to the same tone of it. It's, you know, it's showing things that teenagers haven't seen them before. It's showing representation that teenagers haven't seen them before. And, you know, it's a bit different cause it's, you know, 2020 rather than the nineties. So there are going to be different things, but I think the heart of it and, you know, the rawness of it still remains fairly the same.
0: Yeah. I can't wait. It's so exciting. <laughs> uh, and of course now we have the book. Yes. Different, not less. An amazing, like, unbelievable. How old (laughs) are you again? 25. 25. (laughs) First book. It's an incredible book. Thank you. Was it hard to write? Um,
1: kind of. Because I've been, like, blogging for so long, I just kind of, and I just word vomit, dude. Like, I just, (laughs) like, go for it. So, like, I got approached by Murdoch. I got messaged by them on Instagram. They were like, hey, my daughter's a big fan of you. Do you want to write a book for us? And I was like, this is a scam, but okay. (laughs) And um, now I've got a book, so it obviously wasn't a scam. But yeah, I just kind of wrote what was in my head and what I think people needed to hear. Although I got the contract for the book the same time that I got the contract for Heartbreak High. (laughs) So like I would be filming for like, up to like 16 hours a day and then would have to come home and I'm like, I've got a deadline for my book. So like I did not sleep for like a year. Oh, wow. Um, But now it's done and like both of them are coming out. So it's like it's so worth it. Super (laughs) exciting,
0: super exciting. So um, I know that people listening, we speak mainly to the parents and carers of children Mm -hmm. and I can personally say there is nothing quite as painful as seeing a child that you love Mm -hmm. going through a hard time. What would you say to those parents who have a child on the spectrum that is struggling?
1: Focus on their strengths, man. Like, I think it is so important that we see a child for who they are rather than who they're not and what they can't be. Um, And that's in the education system. But it's also just as a parent. One of the things that was my biggest saving grace growing up is... My parents never looked at my deficits. They never looked at what I couldn't do. Instead, they focused on what I could do and made sure that every aspect of my life was focused upon that. I can't do math. I can't cook to save myself. I can't do a lot of tasks that uh, someone my age should be able to do. And you know what? That's fine. And my parents never once looked at me and tried to change that or were like, no, we need you to do this. They were like, okay, she loves acting and she loves singing and she loves dancing, even though she's awful at it. <laughs> um, and she loves writing and she loves her horses. So when I was homeschooled on the days where, you know, I had to do math and they were and I couldn't do it, like I was finding it hard or my brain just wasn't working that day, they were like, awesome, go out to your horses or take out your animal encyclopedia and go write down the bugs that you find. And they put me into every acting class and every singing class and every dance class and every community theater. And I lived in the middle of the sticks growing up. And my dad would drive me like an eight hour round trip every single weekend, just so I could go to my theater classes, because it's when I was happy. And it's when I felt like I was my best self and when I felt like I wasn't deficit, when I felt like I was important and could do something and knew that I was worthy of something. As a parent, Focus on what your kids can do because they already know that they're struggling and they don't need the carers in their life and the people in their life to also put that on them. Focus on what they can do. And if it's not education, who cares? Not every kid's going to grow up to be a scientist and a mathematician and a doctor. Your kids could be creative and singers and actors and whatever it is. Focus on that because as soon as your kid knows that the people that they love and the adults that they love care about what's important to them, I promise you they're going to thrive.
0: And what would you say to Chloe from that time?
1: Understand that who you are is who you're supposed to be. And life might be a little bit sucky right now, but you're going to find your people and you are going to find your place and everything that you ever dreamed and ever hoped is going
0: to come true. You just have to hold on a little bit longer. Oh, dear. And now I'm crying. (laughs) Chloe, thank you so much for your time today. Thank
1: you so much.
0: That's Chloe Hayden. Her book is available now. I highly recommend it. And you'll find links to where you can get a copy in the notes of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Feed, Play, Love. If you did, please rate, review or favourite. That way you'll get all the new episodes. Plus we can reach and help even more parents. And if you have a topic you'd like me to cover, email me at feedbylove at listener.com. Bye for now.